Hello and welcome to The Rules of Investing. I'm your host, David Thornton. Ten years ago, investing was an easy game. Thanks to rates near zero and reckless fiscal spending, markets were drunk on liquidity. And winning was relatively easy. Pick an index, sit back, and let multiple expansion take care of the rest. Today's reality is far different. Volatility is high, correlations are weak, and the once reliable 60-40 portfolio is, well, not so reliable. In today's episode of The Rules of Investing, I sit down with Francis Lim, Managing Director and Head of Asia Pacific Macro at KKR. She strikes a refreshingly positive tone on today's market, pointing out that wages, nominal GDP and earnings are all above trend. Francis gives us a full macro appraisal of US and Asian markets, the state of China, how she views investing in 2023 and where she's finding value in the market. A quick note to our loyal listeners, research shows that experienced investors are looking for an edge. As the first ever sponsor of Livewire's Rules of Investing podcast, Bell Direct is offering exclusive access to three current Bell Potter stock reports every week for a limited time. To claim, hit up belldirect.com.au and look for the Livewire logo. Well, Francis, thanks for joining us on the Rules of Investing. Well, thank you so much, David. It's great to be here. I'd love to start on US macro. Everyone's talking about soft landings, but Wei Lee, Chief Investment Strategist at BlackRock, makes a good point when she asks whether it's even a soft landing at all, given the economy has flatlined over 18 months. What's your take? Well, you know, I love Whaley, but, you know, I have to disagree about this. Um, if you think about real GDP, it's actually growing the way it normally does. You know, you have nominal GDP running above trend, and that's a good setup for businesses. So as long-term investors, you know, I tend to look at trends all the time. And when you look at the U.S. real GDP, you'll see that it's hugging its long-term trend growth, which is about 2%. So nothing to shout about there. What's really different this time around is that nominal GDP growth is running above trend. And so normally it runs at about, say, 4% annualized. It's running at 6%. That's the big story, and that's probably what she's missing. You see, and this is a great setup for businesses because your revenues are in nominal terms. And so you've got above-trend revenues, above-trend earnings, double-digit margins, and above-trend wage growth, and an abnormally low unemployment rate. So I don't think that the economy has really flatlined. We're actually above the line. And so maybe real GDP isn't as groovy, but most of us live in the real world, and nominal revenues and nominal growth is above-trend, and that's pretty strong. Um, my, my colleagues, Dave McNelson and Ezra Max, they, they actually just raised their U.S. GDP and interest rates forecast. And, and that's because the U.S. growth is coming in so strong. You, if you take all the recent data, the latest bean count for third quarter 23 GDP is actually running at 5.8%. Now, that's not a slow economy. Consensus is at 1.5. So there's a lot of upside to that. And that's where it's going to be a struggle for the Fed because they'll need to shift their commentary a little uh, just because growth is running pretty hot. Um, interest rates are already high, and that's that's where we do see upside. And so they did raise their GDP growth forecast. We're at, uh, for 2023, we're at 2.4% real GDP. And they also raised their um, U.S. 10-year Treasury forecast to 4.75% for the end of this year. So uh, above where we are today, and that's partly driven by, you know, the weak fiscal situation, strong growth, fish downgrade, and then you've got a lack of buyers in the market. 
Um, China's defending its currency, so it's not buy treasuries. And then the hedge costs for some of these Japanese buyers uh, are just way too high for them to be buying treasuries. And so, you know, with our expectation that U.S. treasury yields are supposed to rise a little more, we aren't ready to buy long duration bonds just yet. So we prefer shorter duration, you know, floating rate credit. Where do you see the rate cycle going from here? Um, well, I think where's inflation going? I think we have this framework and we tend to look at inflation relative to growth. And if you think about it as a grid, right, inflation on one axis and growth on one axis, in 2010 to 2016, we were in a low inflation, low growth world. And that was, you know, nirvana for financial assets, right? You saw all capital markets doing well, whether it's bonds, equities, or whatever it is. You moved over to 2017, 2018, we moved into high gear, right? You had low inflation and high growth. Now, come 21, 22, you know, ex-China, you had, you know, relatively high inflation driven by geopolitics and everything else and high growth. Going forward, though, that's the challenge. And that's kind of where the inflation regime is shifting. And it's we actually expect stickier inflation, but slower growth. So it's not a great setup. Um, it's a much more volatile world. But, you know, it shifts the benefits from the financial asset world, like capital markets doing well, stocks, bonds, and everything else doing well, to really benefiting the real economy and assets in the real world. And that's where, you know, we talked about that nominal GDP instead of real GDP doing well. That's where what does well in the real world. Things that have um, assets, assets with cash flows is kind of what we like. And so our theme for investing in this new setup of, you know, higher, stickier inflation and slower growth is really focusing on um, cash flowing assets that are back backed by assets like buildings, infrastructure, equipment, because you own the asset that inflates or grows or appreciates in value with nominal GDP growth, yet you get that coupon, but you don't have the same kind of volatility you would if you just owned a bond. Francis, this is a breath of fresh air. Most people I talk to aren't this bullish on the market. Wait, wait, don't, don't get me wrong here. <laughs> I did say that volatility is higher. Most people shy away from volatility, um, but I guess... I do get excited when markets are volatile because that's a great setup for you if you know how to trade the market or invest behind that market. When markets are stable, everyone makes money. There's no differentiation. So it is a much more difficult market to invest in. Um, you have to be mindful of the differences. And it's in a market where you know a lot of people have not seen uh, this kind of cycle before. right? If you think about the past 40 years, we've gone from an environment where inflation was in the high teens all the way down to zero. That trend of falling inflation is now behind us, right? And so what's the environment going forward? You're going to have inflation bopping around the bottom here, right? Whether it's between two to four, whatever that number is, it's a very different setup for investing. And it's something that none of us, um, well, I wasn't investing 40 years ago. I, I don't think I was around 40 years. So, so, uh, but, but 40 years ago uh, it, it, to, to now, there are a lot of people who haven't seen this kind of environment where inflation is bopping around the bottom, correlations break down, you know, asset classes don't work in the way they used to. And that's kind of where it's a different setup and we need to think differently about investing. Can you give us a bit of a pulse check, Francis, on corporate America? How do balance sheets look? How much dry powder is there? And do opportunities exist to put that capital to work? Yeah, so I guess when you think about balance sheets, there are three big pockets, right? There's the households, there's the corporates, and the government. And so households actually have delevered a whole lot, right? GFC, I think household debt to GDP was close to 100%. That's down to like the 70s now. So households have delevered. They're in good shape. Wages are strong, um, and balance sheets are, are, um, are much less levered. Corporate sector, um, they delivered um, after the tech bubble, 
And so they haven't really relevant. They're still around about 70% GDP. So they're in good shape. And, and as we mentioned before, right, you're in this world of nominal growth where companies are really growing revenues. So nominal growth above trend, earnings above trend, margins are still high. Yes, it is a challenging environment. And yes, higher wages, higher costs are beginning to impact companies, but we've hardly seen any margin, margin degradation. Yes, they've fallen, but a tiny bit. Uh, overall earnings growth is still, you know, quite strong in some sectors. And if you decompose, you know, the index, a lot of the stimulus directed at industrialization and uh, certain sectors are really benefiting the industrial sector quite a lot. Uh, plus consumers are still, um, have healthy balance sheets and have uh, savings. Uh, they've run down some of their savings, but they're still spending at a healthy clip. So overall, co- companies are in good shape because the revenues and earnings are in good shape. And we still expect relatively strong nominal growth going forward. And that's where com- companies are in good shape. The, the area where balance sheets are not um, in as good shape is really the government sector, right? That's where governments have levered up across all countries across the globe. So in your view, has a soft landing been achieved? I don't know if it's um, soft landing, hard landing. I, I think it is more or less a soft landing. We are not expecting a recession. So if that's what a soft landing is, I guess we're there. Uh, but it's a very different kind of uh, environment altogether, right? What's different this recovery? We have a strong technical backdrop, low unemployment rates, and strong nominal GDP growth. Uh, despite the strong growth, you have a lot of fiscal spending. At the same time, on the other side of the world, because China's has weak growth, you have monetary easing, uh, offsetting some of the tightening in the US, Europe, and Japan. So very different environment. What does this result in? Unfortunately, it's sticky inflation. That's where a lot of central banks are working hard right, to bring inflation down. Um, you have some margin, margin degradation, but like I said, it hasn't been too bad because so far the strong growth allows companies to really maintain their margins to a certain extent. Um, but there is a growing debt burden on the government sector, um, and, and that's where we're quite positive 23. Looking into 24, because of the upgrade in growth in 2023, we, we expect um, – uh, a, a, a tougher uh, comp, uh, comp in 2024 just because growth is stronger in 23. Let's stay on the macro but move to China. Uh, it's all happening in the Middle Kingdom. Last week, Evergrande, once the second largest property developer, filed for bankruptcy. Um, what's happening in China? I think um, a few things are happening. Um, let's go back in time a little, right? Um, so if you think about last year, uh, the economy was struggling because it still had uh, zero COVID policy. People aren't, weren't moving around. Um, and that changed towards the end of last year, beginning of this year. And most of us expected the economy to recover rapidly, just as we saw in the US, in Europe, in Australia and other countries. Um, but that didn't happen. And why didn't it happen? It didn't happen because the backdrop was a very different setup. Uh, firstly, China didn't stimulate as much as the U.S. and Europe. Um, in fact, you know, U.S. has strong growth and is still spending on the fiscal side. You actually had fiscal tightening in China and fiscal revenues were up 17% year over year uh, in an environment where growth was weak. At the same time, you had uh, fiscal cuts and other cuts uh, because they... Um, increase, uh, decreased wages in, in, for, for, um, salaries in the financial sector, both in the public and private sector. And so you saw, um, less payments going out, consumers with less money in their pocket, and they didn't stimulate using, um, the same kind of method as the US. There were no handouts given to the consumer. And that's where it's been a big struggle. At the same time, 
over the past couple of years, you've seen policies really um, changing the way China addresses businesses. And so you had the tech sector where, you know, Alibaba, Tencent came under attack and it was not very friendly to the technology sector. As a result, you've seen um, these sectors have to pull back severely. And actually, for the first time ever since they developed the private sector, don't forget, it's a very new private sector. Only since the 1990s, they went from, you know, 0% private sector to about 60% of the economy. Uh, so this is the first time ever they actually had layoffs. And they were starting in the tech sector because of, you know, the changes in policy around technology. Then you had uh, retrenchments as well in the property sector, given, you know, policies changing around housing, housing for living, you know, speculating. And then even the online education sector, which is, you know, traditionally some a place where, you know, fresh graduates would become teachers online and they would earn an income there. So if you think about where these young graduates and China graduates, like 10 to 13 million graduates a year, I know the population of Australia is just 26, right? So that half, <laughs> those are massive numbers that they're graduating every year. And where do these students normally go to get a job? They go into the financial sector, which um, has been culled because they looked across the spectrum and like wages in the financial sector were outsized compared to other sectors. And so they cut wages up to about 50% in some cases. Um, they attack the property sector, which is another sector where youth go. They attack the education sector, again, sectors where traditionally um, the youth would go once they graduate. And so the unemployment, um, youth unemployment rate, it's like 21% was the last click. They did not print the youth unemployment rate after the graduates graduated this July. So we don't know what the latest print is, but at a minimum, it's 21%, if not higher. And that's kind of where when you don't have a job and you didn't get a handout, you're not spending. So the recovery in China has been relatively weak. And that's been the, the big challenge I think we see in China, uh, not just now, but going forward. You know, how do you shift that? How do you get people back to work again? Um, and how do you shift sentiment again? Why has China been so reluctant to directly support the consumer, choosing to instead pursue some form of Chinese trickle-down economics? Well, you, the Job Saver Act in, in Australia wasn't too much different. You didn't support the consumer directly. You actually supported businesses to keep consumers employed, right? And so I don't think it's that they're not supporting the consumer, but they're not supporting the consumer with direct handouts, which if you look across... And I study emerging markets in Asia in particular. So if you look across a lot of countries, uh, every time you see countries giving cash handouts, whether it's India, Indonesia, and all that, it doesn't really end up in a good place because that's not a productive use of capital. The better use of capital is investing behind uh, something that can produce more down the line, whether it's infrastructure uh, or businesses that can perpetuate the job creation machine. And so that's what China did. They said, we're not going to give cash handouts like the U.S. We're actually going to invest behind infrastructure and certain priority sectors to really um, set the stage up for the future. And so they continued with that playbook during the pandemic. But because they actually controlled uh, the virus quite rapidly in 2020, if you remember, they had very extreme shutdowns, right? The rest of us didn't believe it was happening until we got hit, right? They had very extreme shutdowns and they could go on their merry life. In 2020, even they didn't, even without the vaccine, and in 21, um, and that's where they're like, "Oh, growth is actually pretty strong in the second half of 2020. Let's remove some of these policies we put in place." So they were very, very quick to react, which I don't think is a bad thing. I actually think it's the right policy, right? 
you should have counter-cyclical policies to slow down the ebbs and flows of the economy so you have less swings and more stable economy. Instead, what did the U.S. do? They kept stimulus low, uh, kept stimulus flowing. They they kept interest rates low. Uh, They believed in average inflation targeting when growth was really strong. They kept on piling on fiscal stimulus and low interest rates and created a massive inflation bubble, created a massive boom, boom cycle. So growth and inflation have been off the charts. And now you have to have the correction, which is much harder to put the genie in the bottle, whereas China had tried to keep it relatively steady by supporting industries, removing stimulus the moment growth recovered. So not necessarily 100% wrong policy. It's just a different policy and, and more counter-cyclical thinking than pro-cyclical. You touched there on the COVID zero policy, but growth in China peaked in the middle of last decade. Uh, is the fallout from the pandemic just an acceleration of a structural trend already in place? Growth in China had been slowing, right? They peaked in growth in, say, 2014, I want to say, um, and then growth has been declining over time. But that's because of the law of, lo- law of large numbers, right? As your yep. denominator grows, uh, you could be growing you know, 2 billion a year, but that's less on a bigger denominator. So part of it is that. Secondly, um, they're becoming more mature. And so the incremental growth is harder to come by as you're a more mature economy. Um, they really need to shift from you know, just moving, just doing manufacturing, bringing urbanization from rural to urban. Um, and they were growing quite rapidly using these techniques as well as investing uh, behind the economy, building infrastructure. And that frees a lot of capacity, right? Why hasn't India done well in the past four mm-hmm. decades? It's because they didn't invest behind the infrastructure that could unleash their economy. That's changed now, of course. But those are the reasons why growth has slowed in China um, and it has, as it matures, it needs to evolve in how it gets its growth. It has to focus on different productivity drivers. And that's what they've been trying to do, moving into higher end manufacturing, uh, moving into the services sector. Um, but like I said, it's on a bigger base. And so growth does slow. At the same time, you've passed the tipping point of urbanization, right? You get the bulk of growth between, you know, zero to 50% penetration. And this is across all asset classes. So if you're thinking about e-commerce penetration, you're thinking about, you know, uh, any any penetration, including urbanization, once you reach that 50% mark, you slow down just because you're more than halfway through the the, the, the cycle. Um, and so they passed that 55% maybe um, five, 10 years ago. And that's and now they're growing at a much slower pace because the urbanization after you pass that 50 mark is much slower. Um then there's also population growth that is slowing. So in aggregate, population growth is negative. Uh, working age population growth is negative. And that's kind of a bit of a drag. You still do have urbanization, uh, which still should help support the economy over the longer term. Uh, but it's, it's a different kind of growth uh, because it's much, much more mature. Alongside high volatility, we've also seen a lot of correlations in the market breakdown. Uh, are correlations a thing of the past? No, I, I must. I, I studied statistics and major in statistics, so correlations will never be a thing of the past. Um, I, I think what does shift is uh, how correlations evolve. Now, correlations aren't static; relationships aren't static, and neither are correlations. And if you think about the past forty years, you had a massive tailwind and trend of falling inflation, falling interest rates, which really kept uh, stock bond correlations negative which was phenomenal for portfolio managers. You could run a 60-40 portfolio 
have, you know, double digit returns with great ease and low volatility. Now, now that you have reached that bottom of that channel of, you know, interest rates falling, you're bopping around the bottom. So the correlations will change much more rapidly. You don't, you've lost the trend and you're in this range where you're chopping around. So correlations will work over a sh- very short period of time, but they're changing. So depending how you were investing, you ha- really have to either churn your portfolio very often or you have to invest beyond the near-term churn and focus on the longer-term trends. Now, the other thing is, you know, you've lost that trend of falling inflation to one where inflation's chopping around and probably going to be higher than it was pre-pandemic. And that's, again, a different mindset. So if you think about some investors who really try to protect their portfolios from inflation by using treasury inflation-linked securities or TIPS, that was among the worst performing asset classes last year. It was down 12%. So your inflation protection securities didn't work. What does work? You actually need a new way of investing and find asset classes that actually do protect you when inflation is rising. And that's, again, where we bring you back to the real economy. What is linked to nominal GDP growth is going to be assets. It's going to be buildings. It's going to be infrastructure. So things that have an asset base, they can have cash flows, which we love. So asset-backed securities with cash flows, things like infrastructure, real estate, um, or, or other assets that you collect a coupon up front because that coupon uh, really helps dampen volatility a little. At the same time, you're getting the benefit of the asset itself inflating when there is inflation, unlike a bond, which you actually get hit on the duration side. So actually, um, we actually, my colleague, Rasim Alwani, he actually coined this new uh, allocation. We're shifting from a traditional 60-40 bonds and stocks portfolio to what we call a 40-30-30, right? So you still have your first two categories, your bonds and stocks, but instead of 60, you trim it down to 40 and you, and you trim your 40 down to 30. And with the remaining 30 that you freed up, that's what you use to invest behind asset classes that actually do well in an environment of inflation as well as deflation. Um, and you can still collect some return, plus it actually helps improve your risk-adjusted return. And so what we like to sort of um, tell people is you, you retain your stock bond, but you create some space. And in that space, you invest behind alternatives. Again, I'm going to talk about these collateralized-based cash flows uh, that are linked to nominal GDP growth. So it's going to be asset-based finance, things like infrastructure, things like real estate that actually have that same kind of characteristic as a bond because it has a cash flow, but the asset behind it doesn't get impacted the same way a bond does when there is inflation. And these things work both in the in times where uh, inflation is rising and falling. So it acts as a diversifier, unlike 2022, well, you saw both stocks and bonds fell at the same time. Bonds were not the diversifier you thought they were. Um, and so this is what we think the new paradigm of investing will entail. You have to think out of the box. You have to think differently about investing. You have to look for asset classes that actually can protect you from inflation because we've lost that massive 40-year trend and we're chopping around in this range. That's 40, 30, 30. Let's zero in on that last 30. What does that look like in today's market? Yeah, so what is in that alternative bucket of new asset classes that aren't a traditional stock and bond portfolio? Well, I mean, um, I don't mean to sound self-serving because I am working in a a private market investing firm. So a lot of those asset classes are private markets. But, you know, there is benefit to harnessing the illiquidity premium in private markets, especially when the liquid markets aren't as liquid as you think. (laughs) And it's actually quite illiquid if you try to um, trade some of these markets. So... 
I think th- those asset classes, when I look at the sort of like expected returns across the portfolio, the highest end um, would be private equity, right? There's, it's sort of like think about your equity bucket plus an illiquidity premium and that you will have the highest returns will be private equity. What's interesting about that is if you think in the next 5, 10, 20 years, you're going to be in an environment where valuations aren't going to be as high as before, growth isn't going to be as high as before just because you've got higher inflation, higher wages, geopolitics, inefficient markets and uh, causing you to have uh, slower growth all, all in, uh, the value you get in your portfolio has to come from something other than beta. So the past four decades, you could invest behind beta. We're looking for alpha. And private equity is an asset class that doesn't really get its return from beta. It's more about, you know, repositioning an asset to get that growth. I think I liken it to, say, renovating, renovating your house, right? In a market where home prices aren't really rising, it's chopping around but not rising. But how do you create value? You buy that house, you renovate it and create value. So that to me is what private equity is. And that's the top of the spectrum. So if you're more risk-taking, you'd invest behind something like private equity um, or some other asset-backed um, uh, securities like private real estate, right? Uh, what's also interesting is private credit and private infrastructure, which I mentioned in terms of collateralized-based cash flow. And when I actually look at returns over the past 5, 10 years versus the, the future 5, 10 years, what's interesting is the gap between the best-performing asset class and the worst has narrowed. So... In the past, you had, you know, cash yielding zero, bonds maybe zero or negative, depending on which way interest rates were going. And then the other end, you had stocks doing relatively well, double-digit returns. Going forward, though, if you think stocks are like mid-single-digit kind of returns, if you're lucky, you get high single-digit. On the other end, you have um, some of these other asset classes, infrastructure, credit, private credit, private real estate, private equity, uh, low double-digit returns. That gap is quite narrow compared to where it was in the future. Now, the question you asked about risk-adjusted returns is kind of the most interesting. That That's where um, today what's most interesting is really in the credit world because um, you can get high-quality credits with, you know, high single-digit, low-double-digit yield and they're investment grade. So there's very little risk for the kind of return you're getting. And if I look across the spectrum and that spread between returns from private equity all the way down to infrastructure and credit have narrowed, where would the best risk-adjusted returns be? 2022 and 2023, it has been, and I think it will continue for a while more to be in the private credit or credit, well, whether you're private or liquid market credit, I think both of these have really interesting opportunities uh, because as you asked before, what's the state of the corporate sector? They're actually doing pretty well, right? You've got, you know, uh, above trend revenue growth, above trend earnings growth. Um, if you think of the composition of the bond market, you've got higher quality bonds, like previously 50%, uh, 30% of uh, the, the bond market was double B, now it's 50%. Previously, 20% only was secured, now about 30% of it is actually secured. Uh, so corporate are in good shape, the consumer is healthy, and housing is undersupplied. So that's a pretty good setup. And you get a coupon or a yield of high single digit, low double digit. That's pretty interesting. And even on some of the other asset classes, whether it's loans or CLOs, um, you can get investment grade credit with double digit yield. So why not take that, uh, particularly as we head into a more volatile environment? You know, we haven't really uh, hit that slowdown. I mean, even if you call it a soft landing, we're still landing. <laughs> and so as you head into that landing, you, you probably want to uh, be a bit higher up the capital structure and not take that much risk, particularly if you can get high single double digit yields. 
Yeah, the past 13 years, beta investing or passive investing has been a winning play with stimulus pumped into the economy uh, on both the monetary and fiscal sides. By extension, are you saying that passive investing alone will struggle moving forward? I think um, it will be more challenging to be a passive investor trying to ride the market. You can still invest behind um, you know, ETFs in the market, but you'd have to be tactical around that. So I'm not sure if being tactical is the same as passive. <laughs> I, I don't think they're synonymous. I actually think they're probably opposite. Uh, but that's where I do think it'll be much more challenging to make money as a passive investor. And so it, prob- it probably is shifting the balance towards an active management portfolio because, like I said, if it's highly volatile, range-bound, you need to harness that volatility and you need someone who knows how to trade that volatility. So that's active management. Um, if you think about how you create value in a market that's shifting, you wanna, you're going to want to invest behind you know, value creation plays. And that's kind of where some of the private market investments where you create value and are not really just depending on market valuation makes sense. Um, but there are going to be some structural themes that you could be a passive investor, provided you can take the volatility along the way. Right. And what do I mean by some of these themes like investing behind climate change, energy transition, you know, this shift in, um, uh, you know, aging population. So you could be investing behind a lot of these themes, um, but they will be volatile because the market is choppy. But you, you have to be very careful and very selective in picking the winners and then being able to stick through it because you believe firmly in these themes. And so we do a lot of thematic investing because, like I said, there's a barbell strategy. Uh, you either trade the market because the market's volatile and harness that volatility. On the other end, you invest behind these themes that will actually carry you through the cycle. And, and so you look through the volatility and, and stomach the volatility and head for that trend. Let's stay on thematic investing. We've seen this explosion in the AI trade this year. What role does thematic investing play? And is it a tactical play or a longer term strategic play? As a theme, by definition, it's longer term. <laughs> and so I tend to think of themes as a longer term uh, investment themes that ride through the cycle. And I think we're at a point of inflection for several different things, right? This whole shift towards uh, climate change, that's a secular shift. That's not coming back. And that's a one-way one way trade, right? But there will be volatility along the way. So there is tactical investing around the theme. So you have the trend line that's up and to the right, but yes, there'll be fluctuations above and below that line. And that's where I think it's both, you can trade it tactically, but the theme is actually that positive. So if you're a passive investor, you'd hold through that volatility. If you're an active investor and you know how to trade around that trend line, uh, you can do that too. So it's it's a bit of both. Uh, but that's one of the themes, things like, you know, uh, thinking about automation, digitization, this whole move towards technology, whether it's AI, robotics. I actually think this whole journey in AI is more of a, evolution rather than revolution. Um, it's been going on for you know, 40, 50, 60 years, started with a PC and then we moved to the internet and then moved to cloud and now um, robotics and AI. I think that's freed up technology in a different way, um, but it's more of a continuation of the same theme, right? Technology. So if you invest behind the technology theme, there are sub-themes within that theme. And so maybe the tactical that you refer to is the sub-themes within the theme that do evolve more frequently over time. Do active investors in a liquid market need to be more active to generate returns these days? I think so. That's what we talked about, right? Higher volatility, having to trade your portfolio. So I do think active investors will need to be more active than previously uh, because the markets will gyrate. and, And I think the biggest shift 
in the past four year, four decades to the next, you know, two, three decades is thinking about the supply side. A lot of people have only ever focused on the demand side. And maybe because we're private markets, our time horizon tends to be five to 12 years, <laughs> not three to six months. And so we always think about the supply side because within our time horizon, supply side responds. And I think what's changed is now, even if you're in the liquid markets with short time horizon, you actually do have to think about the supply side because supply is being impacted by policy or impacted by weather or things you just can't predict anymore. So the supply side does matter. And that's where you'd have to be active in trading that um, much more than previously, because there are many, many more shots to the system. Um, things that we can't predict uh, are a whole lot more than before, unfortunately. Your focus is Asia. Where are you finding the best opportunities? Well, you know, it's, it's crazy, but I actually have liked um, Japan for quite a while. And that's really because, you know, about 10 years ago, we saw a structural shift in Japan for two reasons. One, um, Prime Minister Abe came into office and he was really focused on return on equity. And we saw the beginning of the corporate sector willing to shift the way they do business, shift their priorities and focus on return on equity, which really unleashed uh, and is going to continue to unleash a lot of value in the country. But secondly, because of demographics, I know it's counterintuitive, counterintuitive but if you think about um, Japan as a labor hoarder when labor was the tightest back in the 70s and 80s when they were growing really rapidly, they, they locked everyone into lifelong contracts with 1% inflation, wage inflation for the rest of their lives. Now, if you do the math, Right, and if you you were employed, if you were just a fresh graduate out of school back then, um, and you you were working in Japan, if you do the math, how old were you? Are you going to be today? You're going to be about 60, 65, 70. and so that entire cohort of locked-in labor is now retiring. So, as a company, if you have a fixed cost of labor that you can't really manage, and you have to pay it all the time because they're locked in for life you're not going to have the cash flows to invest behind your business. So as we saw this shift, you saw companies saying, oh my God, I don't have, to, well, I'm not going to call it dead weight, but um, I don't have this locked in labor costs. I can actually invest behind my businesses. And you started to see capital spending pick up. Even, you know, at the very, very beginning of Abenomics, you began to see a shift, not just because of policy, but because of demographics, reaching a point where they're freeing up their capital they're freeing up their cash. They can actually invest behind their businesses. Then you had policies in place to really support return of equity. And so it's one of our most active markets within the region. So if you think about um, companies back 10 years ago, you'd ask you know, one of those big multinationals, what's your core business? And they'll say, I've got 2,000 core businesses. And you ask, no, really, what's your core business? And um, Henry Kravitz used to go there and ask them questions. And this was the response they'd get. And like, they had too many... Uh, businesses that they had sprouted. And that's where it was hard to really focus on one or two things and do that really well. And so what we've been doing over the past 10 years is really um, extracting some of those uh, non-core core businesses uh, and really growing them. So 
I mean, I'm a mom of three. So if you can imagine when you had one child, you gave that child all the attention. I've got three now. And so you can't give all three the same amount of attention. But when we carve out a company, a, a division from a company, we can give that all the love and attention that it needs to really flourish and grow. And so that's kind of where Japan remains one of the most exciting markets for us. And I see that trend continuing for a long while more because we're still at that beginning of the cycle. There's still a lot more to do. And corporate Japan now is willing to do that. Previously, they would never let you have one of their children. <laughs> Today, they're willing to you know, part with certain businesses to help improve the return on equity for the overall business as well as you know, the remaining portion because their attention can be more focused then. The other pocket on the other end of the extreme is India. So one side, you've got aging demographics actually helping propel productivity in a really strange way with ROE rising. On the other end, you have India. Population growth has always been you know, a, a positive story for India, but they had never managed to harness their demographic dividend. And the reason for that is over the past you know, 30, 40 decades, um, they had not had the infrastructure to allow for manufacturing to take off. So most countries, when they move from an emerging to a developing market, they start off with the manufacturing sector. Um, but because India didn't have the infrastructure, they skipped that whole manufacturing phase and went, went straight to services, right? They've been exporting services for a while. But what Prime Minister Modi has done in the past, you know, uh, 10 years or so that he's been in office, he's really um, invested behind infrastructure. He's also invested and shifted policy around GSD, so they don't have fiscal issues anymore. Before that, they'd spend, but they didn't collect tax revenues, and so that would be a problem. But they actually now collect tax revenues and they can spend it. So they've addressed their fiscal issues. With the money they have, they can actually invest behind infrastructure. And pre-pandemic, you'd always see power outages, you know, electricity failures, and, and just not being able to do things on a consistent basis. But post-pandemic, or even throughout the whole pandemic, we did not see a single power outage. So the infrastructure has improved to a point where you actually have a stable enough environment to do manufacturing. You have roads, rails, uh, towers, you know, infrastructure growing. And that's where I think we've reached a point where they can unleash um, the manufacturing part of the economy. Um, at the same time, you have global corporations looking to diversify where they set up their businesses. And you have cheap labor with budding infrastructure uh, reasonably, you know, I mean, the workforce has a huge wide range from, you know, those that were in the services sector doing outsourced services, uh, uh, training and in technology. They're highly skilled. On the other end, you also have, you know, labor coming in from the rural area, a bit less skilled. So they've got a wide variety of labor from low to high end skill that actually can facilitate, you know, this transformation that we've been waiting for for decades that it's, I think is actually going to happen. Well, Francis, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us here on The Rules of Investing. Wonderful. Thank you so much. That's it for another week. Thanks again to Bell Direct for their support of this podcast. And remember, for a limited time, you can get three current Bell Potter stock reports each week. It's the kind of exclusive research that can give investors an edge. So go to belldirect.com.au and look for the Livewire logo to get your Bell Potter stock reports now. I'll see you next time.